Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new The National Blast podcast with Keenan Skelly. Join Keenan and guests as they blast you to a place that is certainly not boring, yet still giving you highlights from areas in cyber where key policies and legislation are needed, exist, but aren't enforced, or no one is even talking about it. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. Hey, 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 everybody. It's Keenan Skelly, the host of the National Blast. I am here today with a very, very exciting lawyer. And you guys know I love lawyers because they're so much fun. And they just jump in and they, they like to yell at you and tell you not to do things that are illegal. Um, much like the, the two lawyers that I've had in the last two episodes. <laughs> um, so I'm going to go ahead and jump right into this. We're going to talk to Anique today. Anique, tell us about yourself. Thank you so much, Keenan. And I know I now have a lot to live up to. So I will have to shout at you at some point during this podcast. And hopefully we can identify some illegal activity that I can tell you maybe not to do or to try and avoid doing rather. Um, So my name is Anique and I am a lawyer. I specialize in privacy and data protection law as well as cybersecurity. I work for a company called CybeSafe. I'm the COO. And it's really interesting to be a woman in tech, a woman in cyber and a lawyer, a lawyer who's crossing the boundaries from law and policy over to that IT world, that world of um, cybersecurity and human risk and how people behave in order to secure data. So it's a really big space. It's a really interesting space and it's an exciting place to be, certainly for myself right now. Um, It's interesting because we're here today to talk about policy and legislation as it relates to data protection and privacy and the interactions that we see with the big tech, but also with world business as we see it moving. And there's that piece around, first of all, we're looking at the pillar of privacy and data protection law. But then we have this other pillar, which is the pillar of cybersecurity and how do we achieve cybersecurity? And there is a huge missing part there in terms of, as you would call it, maybe the GDPR of cybersecurity. There's a missing piece when it comes to enough regulation around cybersecurity. So what we're doing is we're piecing together different pieces of legislation to ensure that we have the results that we need in order to make sure that organizations keep data secure. So today we're looking at India and we're looking at the developments that we're seeing there and maybe how that can impact on a more international plane and for organisations, what they should be thinking about moving forward. And as we are registering with ourselves the changes that we're seeing in international law because a lot of people are doing business with India a lot of people have maybe call centers out there and there's a lot of data being transferred out there so there's lots to take into account at the moment absolutely and you know uh, for the listeners I, I'm really big on privacy right now in fact uh, in the US specifically uh, there's a privacy bill on the floor that is really interesting that does have support from both the the house and the Senate on both sides of the aisle but it's interesting to me not a lot of countries have gone the GDPR route yet not a lot of countries have put into place just, generalized privacy legislation or, you know, kind of executed that at a larger level. So how is how is India kind of handling that? And and what does it look like in terms of the base privacy versus, you know, all the other things that have to be considered for cybersecurity? 
It's really interesting that you ask this question about India, because in a way, India has had an almost schizophrenic reaction to, to GDPR and to privacy law. First of all, they announced that privacy was a human right, which is something that has happened in Europe, and that's the start of GDPR. Privacy is seen as a human right. A right to a private life is, of course, a human right. And this is Amen. not something that we see. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. This is not something that we see in other countries um, in in places like California, the right to privacy is a consumer right. And there, there are arguments that if indeed you are not a consumer, you have no rights. But we won't maybe go down that rabbit hole right now. Um, staying with India and with it being a human right, they did announce it as a human right, which was interesting because we could then see that they had an intention to move towards GDP or style legislation. But then, of course, um, they were looking for more requirements to be put in place to be to be getting more specific permission in relation to the use of personal data to have personal data erased and to really bring themselves in line with GDPR. We then saw some pushback from some larger organizations who would have large operations based there. And we saw as well that there was this there were these um, lobby groups, both within the parliament and outside of the parliament, who were looking to ensure that business could still be done in India. And we're, what we're trying to achieve is that we have the appropriate security in India so that we are sure that when we are doing business, we have call centers, we are transferring data to and from. We, we're comfortable that we have the appropriate transfer mechanisms in place, that data is secure. But at the same time, we don't want to maybe bring ourselves quite into that GDPR sphere unless we have to, because we see all of the issues that are created with GDPR. And to maybe go down that road a little bit, GDPR is an unusual and new piece of legislation because it is a principle-based piece of legislation. Unlike previous compliance laws, there are not checklists. It's not about doing particular things. It's about achieving a particular objective. So it's really about standing back and saying, am I achieving what I set out to do? Do data subjects understand what I'm doing? Are they ultimately respected and in control of their data to the extent that they have the rights to dictate to me in certain circumstances how I treat their data? And this is difficult for organizations because as we know, when we want to map these types of requirements into the business operations of an organization and specifically into the systems and processes that we use, we need to be more linear. We need to be more specific about what we're asking for. And that's where we go back to the checklist. And we hear questions over and over again, is this GDPR compliant? And um, there is no- And everyone's like, what does that even exercise. mean? What do you mean? It means nothing. Like? It means nothing. <laughs> you know, it's um, interesting when we look at this in the perspective of India, and I really didn't think about this until we started talking about it. And, you know. I can't think of a, a you know one of the top ten tech businesses or just businesses globally that doesn't have a massive base in India. So I can imagine you know big companies like uh, Amazon or Alibaba or all of these others. I can imagine their kind of confusion and what the heck is going on when they have to comply with GDPR in some countries, when they're trying to figure out what privacy looks like in the US and then in India, they're also trying to figure out what privacy looks like and how it affects business. I mean, that really has to be confusing. 
It, it is, but I think it's a great opportunity and it, it must be really exciting to be in the parliament in India at the moment because they have this fabulous opportunity which is only brought about due to their success in the international business world when it comes to data. If they did not have so many organisations looking to do business in their country, they wouldn't have this problem. Nobody would care what kind of legislation they introduced. So it's a great opportunity. It's a great challenge to have. It's a challenge that they have because they're growing, because they're being successful and they're capitalising on their people, which I think is a really exciting place to be. Um, and it's they a can different kind of, type like, maybe write their own ticket about what privacy should look like in a place where exactly so prevalent, right? I mean, if we're talking about other countries that fall into that category, um, who are looking to add privacy into the mix, who are looking to add privacy specifically for um, cybersecurity into the mix, they really have the opportunity to shape what that's going to look like. Absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. What they can do now is they can take the really important parts of the GDPR that make businesses, businesses that you want to do business with, businesses that enhance customer trust, and they can take away all of the extra pieces that create confusion and concern. And they have such an amazing opportunity to do something for their country that can bring business into the country, keep data secure within the country and enable international business to transfer data. So I'm really excited to see what they do bring forward. Um, and I think it could be a movement for the rest of the world when it comes to what type of what type of standards are we looking for? I know that some organizations look to apply GDPR worldwide because it is the gold-plated standard, but sometimes that can create a lot of extra work and you have to look at the business case as to if the compliance costs are worth it. Absolutely. You know, I think that in my mind, in the perfect world, we would have an international standard for privacy and data protection because, I mean, it makes sense, especially on the business, especially on the business side, you know, where businesses have uh, multiple locations. But it also makes sense from just an international collaboration standpoint. Um, I know it's difficult for governments to go back and forth with, um, you know, uh, other governments who are GDPR compliant versus those who do not have to deal with that. So even amongst the government, it's a difficult tightrope to walk when not everybody is on the same page. Do you think that an international or a global kind of uh, policy or um, version of GDPR makes sense? Or do you think it's maybe too early for that? I don't know. I think it's a really great idea. It's quite early for it. We might be looking at something like Privacy Shield, a new privacy shield, which might enable us. So rather than looking at uh, global legislation, we could be looking at recognized frameworks such as privacy shield. This could be a really exciting you, opportunity for, the, for everyone. Sorry, for the listeners, can you talk a little bit about privacy, privacy shield? Absolutely. So Privacy Shield is something that we can no longer rely on, but I'll give some in I'll give some input into what it used to look like and then what we're kind of hoping that the next one would look like. So the Privacy Shield was an agreement between the EU and the US and of course Switzerland as well, in that um organizations on both sides of the Atlantic could comply with a certain level of privacy laws so that they could transfer data, personal data from one to the other. So from the EU and Switzerland to the US, and it was in support of transatlantic commerce. So it was a really fantastic mechanism by which we could transfer data to the US without having to get involved in long 
contract negotiations, putting in place extra compliance requirements. And then it, it, it also made us able to do business in such a way that we were able to avoid the data governance issue. I'll come back to data governance in a, in a minute. But what it means in practice is that we're able to do business with the US. There's a certain level of protection that we we all agree that data is is um, privileged to. And from there, we can just go about doing our business, you know, and go about being successful at what it is we do. So that was a really great place to be when we had Privacy Shield. But there were some issues of Privacy Shield. And it was determined that in the US, there were certain laws that contradicted the promises, let's just say, that were put out in the Privacy Shield. And despite the fact that we all agreed that data could be transferred and held to a certain level of compliance and protection. There are certain laws within um, the US and I would add within other countries around the world as well. So it's it's not just the US government. So that's really interesting. Um, you know, we have on the show before talked a lot about the privacy legislation and kind of the issue of having a lot of different states that have um, their own privacy legislation or don't have anything at all. And, you know, just kind of dealing with that on on just the U.S. side is really difficult because there isn't a federal piece yet. But I, I imagine that's obviously very similar to the, the international or global piece that we're talking about. Um, even within countries, the, the, the segments of that country or the provenances of that country I, aren't likely to have exactly the same kind of, you know, legislation or policy around it. So how do we how do we get that far first where just individual countries are able to do what India is trying to do? I think when we're looking at individual countries, it's a really, really pertinent point in that we look at what it is that the business is trying to do. What type of businesses are there? What type of data are we transferring? And really, what are we trying to achieve with this? What type of security measures do we need to ensure? And if we look at the end objective and we go back to these principles behind GDPR, are people's data is the data respected? Are individuals respected? Are they able to transfer their data and feel like they still have control of their data? And at the same time, is business still able to do business? And this is what can make it sometimes difficult because different governments and different regimes think differently about how the government can interact with private businesses. But it goes back to the point you made earlier about privacy being a fundamental human right. If we are on the same page with this type of belief, then I think the laws that stem from this will be similar enough that people will be able to do business with each other. But if we fundamentally don't agree on this basic point, this is where we're going to have to get more prescriptive with the laws. And we all know that the more prescriptive we get and the more code-based we get, the more complicated it gets. And therefore, contract negotiations and data transfer takes longer. Absolutely. So I'm going to throw you a curveball question my inner hacker wants to know. <laughs> so when we talk about data, there is so much data on the dark web. Like bad guys have taken so much data. There is so much data. Everybody's data, your data is out there. Your data is there. So how does that factor into trying to get policy and legislation in any country when there's this kind of dump of data that's already out there how how is that kind of factored in or managed in these processes this is really interesting because it's not just on the dark web right so in some countries 
data is publicly available. In some countries, you can see how much money a person earned and how much tax they paid last year. This is publicly available. And this is really interesting because I was at a conference in Geneva with some international organisations recently discussing this exact point. And it's really interesting. With all of the information out there, should we be so worried about protecting it to the same extent. And this comes back again to the fundamental principles of GDPR. And GDPR is not about protecting data at all costs. It's using it for the purpose that you took it. So data might be on the dark web for a particular reason, and those might be illegal reasons. So we'll park those to one side. (laughs) But if your data is publicly available because the country that you live in has this data publicly available, then it's not about keeping it secret. It's about using it for only the purpose that it was intended to be used for. And I often use the analogy that privacy and security, they need to go hand in hand. You cannot have privacy without security. And you can have absolute security, but absolutely no privacy. Imagine you lived in a bulletproof house that was made of glass. You would be completely secure. However, you would nothing in your life would be private. (laughs) Yeah. So so you really have to be able to balance these two about what's the purpose and what is it that you're you're looking to achieve. And again, when we go back to our analogy of the house, some people prefer to be in a house that's more opaque, but maybe not so secure. And it depends on what it is you're trying to do, both within business and what type of personal data it is. So that's why it's really interesting to look at the idea that data might be available everywhere but it's the processing of the data. It's the usage, it's the analysis, and it's the combining and making decisions for data subjects, for individuals based on that data is the thing that we're trying to regulate rather than the fact that the data exists. And And of course, it's about education. Well, that was my next thing is, you know, it kind of comes down to, at the end of the day, whatever the individual person whether they're the consumer or whether we're talking about privacy as a right, what they're willing to accept and what they're not. If they don't care about their privacy, which is a little bit of a generational you know, issue and change that we're seeing here in the US, um, if they don't care, then is any of this going to matter? On the flip side of that, if you're the business looking at it and it's your IP and your your data, um, yeah, of course you're going to care. So it it in my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's always kind of like this pyramid of the 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 nation and what they're trying to do versus the business or that organization and the individual and how all those pieces fit together. Exactly. It's like the cyber triad in a way, but it's it's the triad of personal data and how the government, business and individuals interact. And it's really interesting because I love that you've brought up this piece around generational um, concerns to do with privacy and different different cultures and different generations think differently about privacy. And it's also, again, going back to my point about what do you do with the data? Because if you are educated and you are enabled to understand what a phishing email looks like or what social engineering might look like, and if you understand the repercussions of putting certain information on the internet, then you can make decisions based on this. But it's when you don't fully understand the repercussions or the risks related to this. I think we know most of the planet is not in that category. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's difficult just to educate, you know, technical skills like, you know, how to 
access a computer or access the internet and in a lot of places in the world, let alone to teach them the principles of cybersecurity, which I'm all for. And I'm, you know, I'm very promoting of that, but it's hard. So how does that enter into how you create legislation and policy? Again, it's going back to this. I believe it's going back to this idea that the data subject owns their data. So if we take it from the premise that the data subject owns their own data and it is not the possession of the business or the government, then we can enable people to make more decisions. And it's really around enabling them to make smart decisions there's the education and awareness piece, but there's also the piece around giving people the help they need when they need it. So understanding that if certain financial information is put out publicly, this might have an impact on your ability to take a loan um, and giving people the just in time information that they need. I think that's really important so that people understand that when they're sharing certain types of information, it has certain types of impact because we all have seen these privacy notices on websites that basically look like somebody cut and paste the GDPR into a privacy notice. And that doesn't That's tell you anything. Literally what they did. They literally <laughs> <laughs> I see that. I know. Businesses. I'm like, you really, you have no idea what you're doing, do you? <laughs> you just slap that That's on. That's a like, red flag for me. <laughs> red flag for me is a, a privacy notice that makes absolutely no sense and looks way too legal ease for me. What I would much prefer to say, see is just in time notices, pop-up notices, reminders about things and periodic reminders about privacy in apps and in different types of social media and software that we use to enable people to rethink if if they want to upgrade or downgrade in terms of the privacy and the types of, of um, data that they're sharing. And it is a learning curve and it's a journey that we're all on together. There has never been so much data in the world and there's never been so many decisions made through AI, especially with this data. So we just need to think about how we're going to regulate this moving forward. And there are some legislation coming down the line in Europe for regulating AI. But again, technology moves faster than legislation. So it's thinking about the principles behind it. That's a really fascinating piece. And I, I, I was able to read through some of the initial pieces on that, that EU legislation about AI. And it's really interesting what they consider private and, and privacy when it comes to artificial intelligence development versus anything that has artificial intelligence plus biometrics. Like that changes the game entirely, uh, which it should, in my opinion. But it, it's interesting to see how that's kind of playing out there and and the restrictions that they're putting on businesses that combined different types of technology. Right. So the combining of data is a huge one. And the biometric piece, again, when you link it in, really changes the playing field on this. And it's when, when to go back to an Article 9, talking about sensitive data, and there was all this kind of concern about medical data, and nobody really thought that anybody outside of the government or hospitals would need any of the medical data. And then two years later, less than two years later, COVID hit, and suddenly everybody was um, processing and analysing and having visibility of everybody else's medical data in relation to vaccinations, in relation to their status as it pertained to COVID. So I think it's really just a matter of time before we hit a big wall in relation to AI. And I think we should embrace technology and AI. I would, 
I wouldn't be working in this space if I didn't embrace it. So it's about how we use it and harness it for, for the betterment of society rather than trying to curtail innovation because the last thing we want to do is curtail innovation. Yeah, I, I liken this to, uh, you know, the knowledge uh, back in the, the 40s and 50s, the knowledge that you have created a nuclear weapon. Like, okay, we created this thing and it could be amazing. It could be really amazing and change the world and energy as we know it. It can also be used as a weapon. So let's do everything we can <laughs> to put protections around all of the, the ways that it can be made a weapon versus, you know, the, the innovation of changing energy in the world. Uh, now that was not a perfect solution and it didn't work out super well as we know. So if we learn from our mistakes in, in that kind of space and other spaces, then we should be able to look at this objectively and say, okay, there is a right and wrong space here, right? Let's try to figure Absolutely. that out. Absolutely. And I liken it as well to prohibition. So mm -hmm. they tried to overregulate alcohol consumption, which resulted in people trying to make alcoholic beverages in bathtubs and dying as a result. So let's just try and give people some trust, give them enough ability to do things that they need to do, enable people to be innovative. And now when we see the huge variety and um, developments both within gin and beers around the world and the microbreweries, and it creates business, it creates employment. It's just fantastic to see this, you know? So it's about enabling people to be innovative, to bring the world forward to a better place, to use AI for good, to use AI to enhance business, but not, you know, to put those safeguards, as you said, in place so that we're not finding ourselves in a position where people are completely constrained and decisions are being made on their behalf because of of uh, analysis of their personal data that's being done that we don't have an opportunity to object to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I immediately, again, from my US perspective, I immediately think of all uh, like a billion things I want to say about, <laughs> about privacy for the US. And I immediately I'm like, okay, no, don't. That's a whole other topic. Like it's a whole other thing. So <laughs> going back to India, um, you know, what would be your kind of gold star, you know, one or two things that you really hope that India gets right that will kind sure. of lead the way for the rest of the world? I know it's it's an interesting one because they have such a huge opportunity in front of them. I think the things that they should be really thinking about are along the lines of data and privacy being a human right. I would love to see that they get data security right, that they get transfer mechanisms right, that they do not go overboard on data governance so that we can, you know, that the personal data of Indian subjects doesn't have to be stored in India, that there aren't these requirements, that we don't set off a train of um, thought whereby everybody wants their, their governance constrained to the country where the data subject resides, because then we're going to end up having to segregate everything. It's not going to work. Internet. So I'd love to that's see them. Great. I'd love to see them get that right. That that's a huge one. I'm so glad you touched on that. Um, you know, when we talk about privacy in technology as a business and as a business owner, you know, where your data sits is a huge, huge issue. And people, companies, large tech companies, and any other company spend a lot of time figuring out where they're going to put data for people in different countries. Um, so that is that's really profound to me right now. Yes. <laughs> okay. So 
This is really fascinating to me. If people want to know a little bit more or learn more about kind of what's happening uh, with India or with other countries outside of, you know, GDPR proper, where can they learn more about this? There are loads of great places to get more information. There are some some bigger organizations who provide tech in the privacy space, like the uh, like OneTrust, who send out information. There's the International Association of Privacy Professionals who send out information. And there's a lot that we can get from TechCrunch. But additionally, um, they could join one of my LinkedIn pages, um, <laughs> Diversity and Privacy, <laughs> because I'm trying to enhance this idea around diversifying the type of person that's in privacy, both the people that are there, but also our approach to privacy and how we think about it and thinking about privacy as a competitive advantage, as a supporter of innovation, as a way of bringing business forward, rather than a, a group of lawyers shouting no, as you suggested at the start of our podcast. You I haven't, haven't done shouted that. at me yet. It's really amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I love that. I absolutely love that. And your details are going to be included uh, when we launch this. So if you guys are interested in checking that out, definitely. This has been such a great conversation. I love checking in on how the rest of the world is looking at privacy. It's such a fascinating issue. And is it a right? Is it not a right? Is it a right for an organization or not, or for a government or not? And these are questions that are being answered right now. So it's really exciting and an exciting time to be in the space of uh, privacy and data law. It is a hugely exciting time, especially as as privacy is coming closer and closer to cybersecurity and we're seeing the two become part of the same um, discussion more and more. And as we see more and more legislation that is coming out of Europe in particular, which relates to all different parts of business, talks about operational resilience. So it doesn't talk about cybersecurity. It doesn't talk about privacy. It talks about operational resilience. And that is privacy and security. So if we get that right, we have solved this problem and we won't have to create more laws that are boring and called privacy <laughs> laws or GDPR laws. But indeed, they're laws about business and they're laws about bringing business forward. And they're done in such a way that operationally we have that privacy and security that we need. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Anik. This has been fascinating. Um, I, I absolutely love everything that you're doing. And uh, I'm really excited that we were able to get you on the show. You guys, this has been the latest episode of The National Blast. We'll see you on the flip side. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The National Blast podcast with Keenan Skelly. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.